The Katie Swatis Social Justice Podcast is now available on iTunes and elsewhere with the award-winning adventure novel Irreversible Damage by J.L. Reese. The series is narrated by actor Mike Gomez. In this first book of a series on contemporary social justice activism, Katie learns that changes affecting her life were instigated by forces and people far removed from her and whose greed for a political and financial game means more to them than the lives they sacrificed along the way. Irreversible Damage, the Katie Swatis Social Justice Series, a novel by J.L. Reese, narrated by Mike Gomez. Chapter 5, Operation Alamo Unbeknownst to the Swatis family, an event in Trump Tower had taken place almost a year prior that would profoundly affect their future and the fate of millions. The most brilliant strategists from Trump Corporation had arrived to an important meeting. They were being escorted into two large private elevators decorated with floor-to-ceiling mirrors divided by gold frames with classical music playing in the background. The guests walked out of the elevator into a long hall with white Italian marble floors and a long red silk carpet runner in the middle of the hallway. The walls had carved wood paneling, and on each panel hung fine examples of American and European paintings, ranging from French Impressionist to Cubist in abstract. Spaced throughout the hallway were bronze sculptures on pedestals, each piece had special lighting to accentuate its beauty. This very long hall was intentionally designed to intimidate and demand admiration and respect. Two beautiful assistants welcome each participant with their choice of cappuccino, coffee, or tea from around the world, all served in fine china with the Trump corporate seal. The boardroom was unusually large. The carpet was red, and the entrance had the name Trump in gold letters. The board table was solid African black wood with integrated monitors at each station, as well as connections for laptops, translation earphones, and other audiovisual needs. Each board chair was made from Napa leather. Donald Trump's chair was the head of the board table and was especially designed with the Trump Enterprises logo in gold embroidery. Trump surrounded himself with people who knew that to work for Trump Corporation meant getting results or getting fired in the most embarrassing way possible, just like the TV show. In this business, failure was not an option. The end justifies the means. The methods used to make money or succeed on the deal were not of great importance. They never discussed collateral damage. Machiavelli would be proud of this group. The meeting took place early in the presidential campaign when the numbers were low, and the more qualified and experienced presidential candidates mocked and underestimated the viability of Mr. Trump. This was a time when Mr. Trump's closest advisors scrambled to find ways to make a multimillionaire from New York 
who shared nothing in common with the American Republican base, be someone who people would identify with and want to vote for. This was no small feat. With all the Trump Corporation might, public relations, and marketing research experience, they chose the old, tired, and true tactics of finding a common enemy that Trump could identify, one the base already feared and also disliked. Thus, his followers would see they had common enemies' concerns and interests with Trump. The gathered team was not scrambling to identify one or multiple common enemies to center the campaign around. Donald Trump was not present at the meeting. Warren Parker, one of Trump's most trusted employees and the guru of marketing and public relations for the Trump Corporation, was entirely in charge of the meeting and its strategies. Let me make this absolutely clear, Parker said. You're here because you are the brightest business, marketing, public relations, and political minds in our company, and we're not leaving this room today until we fine-tune this strategy. Also, let me remind you, this is an ultra-private meeting. Each one of you has signed confidentiality agreements, which means if anything leaks out, there will be hell to pay for you. You all understand and have been briefed that at this point, our polls show that to energize our base and build a bond between Mr. Trump and the average Republican voter, we must find hated common enemies. This is a tactic our research shows will work well. Our research points to some groups, which are already disliked by our target base. Our strategy is to have Mr. Trump share his intense dislike of these bad people who are hurting America. And this will demonstrate to the voter how Mr. Trump shares common values. We must find a perfect villain or make them look really evil because crowds really like to hate a nasty enemy, Parker continued. Ideally, this enemy should be different from us, but be among us, someone who our political enemies have ignored and allowed to grow and who are believed to be causing harm to society. Mr. Trump would become the only candidate who has the guts to identify and protect America from this enemy. Using polling and focus groups, the team had developed a list of possible villains with enemy nations at the top of the list, North Korea, Iran, and China. Those were easy but dangerous targets, and leaning too hard on them could cause an international crisis that at this early stage of the campaign could spell disaster. The decision was to use these foreign enemies for softer attacks, as they would do well as secondary targets, especially on defense and economic topics. They would come in handy any time some media attention might be needed for the Trump campaign, but all agreed these nations would not be their primary common enemy. The discussion started with a very vocal group, Black Lives Matter, which had caused a lot of commotion and infuriated some pro-law enforcement groups, which were part of the target base. It was deemed that leaning hard on this group was extremely dangerous because in this day and age, no one wanted to look like a racist against the African Americans. 
Such accusations could lead to political disaster and an early exit from the race. Muslim immigration was an intensely debated subject, and there is undoubtedly deep resentment held by Americans who thought their way of life had changed because of radical Muslims. But Muslim groups are influential and can be very vocal when threatened. This was a tinderbox. And Trump's advisor argued against leaning on the Muslims too hard. Nevertheless, they were deemed a great secondary target, and Michael Moon, an expert in Islamic studies, was placed in charge of developing a solid campaign. Donald Trump himself couldn't care less who would become the common enemy or scapegoat. He felt far superior to the rest of the world, and apart from him and his family, everyone was inferior and disposable. Like his books, The Art of the Deal, Think Big and Kick Ass, and others showed, Trump doesn't really like or dislike anyone. It is more in terms of, are they useful? Conveniently, he admired and praised people who could serve his purpose or serve him well, but once they were of no use to him, he gladly said, you're fired. An important strategy shared in his book was that if anyone got in his way, he liked to use a big show of force, a big lawsuit, and offensive language to put those losers in their place. Trump wanted people to fear him and know he held grudges. In their methodic planning, his advisors went down the list of common enemies' prospects and finally arrived at the Mexicans. They made no effort to make distinctions between legal Mexican immigrants or illegal Mexican immigrants. A shrewd Trump advisor was quick to point out the fact that there were a lot of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the U.S., and the Hispanic vote was becoming increasingly important. Offending Hispanic voters might hinder their chances in some primaries, and certainly in general. Another advisor who was well-informed of the Mexican immigration problem told the group that there was definite discontent among the suburban Republican base about Mexican immigration. Numerous research studies showed legal and illegal Mexican immigration had little to no real consequence on the economy and on crime. If they used the Mexicans as the common enemy, opposing candidates could quickly point to the lack of evidence, and it could backfire. The group agreed to use the Mexicans as another secondary soft target. Then a voice was heard. Jerry Valenti, one of Parker's newest protégés, eager to impress the boss, jumped into the conversation. Jerry was an impressive and handsome young man, who always wore Italian designer suits. He was a young Dean Martin lookalike. With an international business degree from Columbia University, where he majored in Latin American studies, he spoke with excellent knowledge on the subject. Boss, Valenti said, I think this might be the ideal target and the perfect common enemy that we are looking for, and that we can safely make them the center of our attacks. First of all, while it's true the real numbers show unimportant consequences from Mexican immigration on crime and the economy, this is our advantage. 
How can that be an advantage? Asked Parker. Look, all of the other candidates always talk about the Mexican immigrants as a minor problem, and they are soft on them. It'll be our advantage if we identify them as a major problem. The others will have to scramble to agree or disagree, and we will become the leaders on the issue. A lot of people see them as a problem and don't like them, especially in the South and Southwest states, where there has been a lot of Mexican immigration. And many of our target-based states are in that area. Hmm, said Parker. I'm afraid that we may alienate the Hispanic voters. Valenti continued. With the proper strategy and careful manipulation of the facts, they will be the perfect scapegoats. I'm sure that it won't take too much to make the Mexicans responsible for the drug problem, increased crime, welfare abuse, unemployment, and every other vile thing happening in our country. You could use a symbol like, let's build a wall to keep them out. Because, as you know, symbolism is significant. Jerry Valenti looked around and saw most people silently nodding in agreement. His conviction grew stronger and he burst forth. Hispanics are divided into Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and other Hispanics who have different concerns than Mexicans. Central and South American Hispanics, who recently immigrated to America, prefer not to be confused with Mexicans because of the negative historical connotation, so Mexicans can be isolated easily. What do you mean, isolate? asked Parker. Valenti looked at Parker for approval and said, It's essential to isolate and vilify the Mexicans. We must be cautious to exclude the rest of the Hispanic community and only make references about the Mexicans. That way, the rest of the Hispanic population won't feel affected. Valenti was in a roll and could see his boss Parker smiling in approval at his pupils' machinations. Mexicans themselves are divided. The wealthy and successful Mexicans blend into the U.S. quickly and prefer not to be associated with the peasant Mexicans. The Mexicans born in the U.S. and the mixed Mexicans distance themselves from the newcomer Mexican immigrants and don't want to be called Mexicans, because of the negative connotation, choosing to be called Chicanos, Latinos, or Hispanic, or just American. Many will feel that attacks on Mexicans do not affect them. They have no unified front, so they are weak. Valenti knew this subject thoroughly and continued his explanation with a confident and sinister smile. And one more thing. If you look at history, like after the Mexican-American War, when you attack Mexicans, they will double down. They were abused so badly by the Spaniards, it's in their nature to retreat and accept their fate. They're generally a peaceful people, boss, he said with a smile. You can lean as hard as you want. This is your best bet. Make them the common enemy. It will be very successful. Parker and the team were satisfied. Jerry Valenti was placed in charge of this vital project. He was given one week to develop and start implementation of the strategy, 
which he codenamed Operation Alamo in reference to the famous Texans' battle cry against the Mexicans. Valenti was determined to impress his boss, so he worked day and night and reread his school books and history books related to how Mexicans have been dealt with after the U.S. took over Mexican land. He was diligent, smart, and thought of everything. As the man in charge of Operation Alamo, Valenti supervised everything that could be even remotely related to the project, including any section of Mr. Trump's speeches which referenced Operation Alamo. He would research and scout parts of the countries he deemed vulnerable and then deploy his propaganda. He would use friendly reporters to publish articles suggesting a dramatic increase in crime and drug abuse attributable to the Mexican immigrants. This started the spread of rumors and energized people against the Mexican immigrants. Valenti's ideal scenario was when the Mexican committed a crime around a target area. He disseminated this information to the press and over social media to show how these bad people were damaging the American way of life. Once he primed the towns, he had Mr. Trump go to the city and get people fired up. It worked so well that people started loving Trump because he understood the problem. The more Jerry Valenti and his team were able to get people to hate Mexicans, the more people started to believe in Mr. Trump because he had the correct values and was the man trying to save America from these evil people. Valenti also looked for like-minded, influential people who had already shown animosity against Mexican immigrants or people who used Mexicans as scapegoats to further their careers. When Jerry found Sheriff Arpaio in Arizona, he felt he had won the lottery. Operation Alamo was a huge success, and Parker was pleased with Jerry Valenti. Valenti was relentless. Operation Alamo had to be spread all over the country, even in states where Mexican immigration was not a problem. Valenti had his team comb the news for excellent opportunities, and if they found a crime committed by a Mexican in any town, they would deploy Operation Alamo in that town. They leaked information to friendly reporters and became very good at stirring hate and distress. A few months into the Alamo project, one of Valenti's subordinates, Moses Stone, heard of an armed robbery committed by an illegal Mexican teenager, Ramiro Dorado, in Mississippi. Moses leaked damaging information acquired by the local police to the news and infiltrated the local neighborhood watch groups to make everyone aware of this and other crimes committed by Mexicans. He was successful in getting the town up in arms. Valente then organized a rally for candidate Trump, which had massive attendance and emotional calls for action. Valente called the local sheriff a hero and encouraged him to be more vigilant about removing the dangerous Mexican criminals from the streets. A few weeks later, Moses found that Ramiro Dorado had been accidentally confused with someone else and wrongfully accused. Young Ramiro was, in fact, a good church-going kid with an impeccable reputation and was college-bound. With a lot of hard work, his parents had helped his older sister Dolores get into college. The sheriff had known about this for quite a while, but the glare of the spotlight and adulation clouded his reason, 
and he decided to hold on to the information as long as possible. Unfortunately for Ramiro and his family, the sheriff waited until things calmed down to clear Ramiro of the crime due to lack of evidence and released him to ICE, who quickly deported him. This devastated Ramiro's family and split them in half. It forced Ramiro's mother to move back to Mexico with her son and leave the rest of the broken-hearted family behind. Moses approached Valentin, confessed his feelings of guilt for his involvement. He started to realize that this clever operation Alamo had collateral damage and destroyed people's lives. Jerry Valenti became a beast, and his eyes were red with fury. You're just a pussy and a classless professional, he bellowed at Moses and fired him, but not long before threatening to destroy Moses' career and life if he ever talked about Alamo to anyone. Moses was scared and could tell Valenti was serious about his threats. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts for the Katie Suarez Social Justice Podcast based on the 2019 Best Latino Focus Fiction novel Irreversible Damage by J.L. Reese. The series is narrated by actor Mike Gomez. A timely and poignant novel about a young Latina's courage, about personal growth, and following your heart, no matter how costly it may be. Kim Chavez, La Plaza de Cultura y Artes.